it really is just its own unique special world out here where uh, it's you know it's lunchtime and and you just go out and you like accidentally come across uh, a Nobel Prize winner as he's just like eating his lunch and uh, you overhear conversations and everyone's just talking about physics. Like I said, the the kind of people who who end up doing physics are people who are just really pumped about physics. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? My name is Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. This week, we have got the first two-part episode that we have had in quite a while, thanks to having Tom Perry on the show, who is a particle physicist at CERN, which is probably the most famous place for scientific discovery in the past like 20, 30 years or so. Um, I've definitely, basically in my lifetime, it's like the most famous scientific discovery place, largely thanks to the Large Hadron Collider that they have there and the thousands of physicists that they employ there to do all sorts of different tests uh, relating to smashing particles together in the Large Hadron Collider. So um, Tom will discuss all sorts of different aspects of uh, what a day in the life is like at CERN, what you do as a particle physicist, what physics is, what particle physics is, uh, what sorts of things people are working on nowadays there. and just what it's like to live being surrounded by other brilliant people. All of those things will be covered in part one here today. Um, Part two, which will be released on Thursday, will uh, cover a little bit more stuff on the on the particle physics side. And then after that, we go off the rails a little bit into stuff that I really love to talk about. And we talk a lot more uh, philosophically and a lot of sci-fi related things like sort of uh, hypotheticals and potential things. And, and, you know, could this happen in the future and what could that possibly look like in space travel and all these different things? Because... I love thinking about that stuff and having somebody as brilliant as Tom, who uh, is actually intelligent enough to be able to talk about the feasibility of these things is is a real gift. So um, anyways, a lot. So, yeah, a lot more of the actual tactical, serious, scientific talk in in this episode and then uh, a little bit more sort of experimental uh, fun, interesting talk in part two. So without further ado, here is CERN particle physicist. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So this is going to be a lot of work on your end because I, like, I've had one other uh, experimental particle physicist on the show, and it takes a lot of work and a lot of time on your side just trying to even like find the words to explain these things in the way that uh, normal people like me can understand. So um, thank you for taking the time to do that today. And uh, why don't we start with something really uh, basic and easy that will kind of set the stage for everything else, which is what is physics exactly before we even go into particle physics or experimental part of particle physics, um, just as a backbone, what exactly quantifies physics? Yeah. uh, So, I mean, you you say this is like, you know, an easy question, uh, but it's kind of it's kind of not that easy a question. So, uh. Okay, you're telling me that I'm going to have to do some work, hopefully, like, 
you and all the listeners out there are also willing to like do a little bit of work <laughs> uh, as well. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, what is what is physics? It's uh, yeah, it's tough. It's tough to say. I mean, it's it's definitely math, right? We all know physics is math, but it's also not necessarily like. Uh, so if you know if if it's like a, a breezy day and I and I toss a frisbee to you. You know, you're probably going to catch it, you know, like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe next time. <laughs> but the thing is, people can, people can catch a Frisbee on a breezy day. And if I wanted to, uh, if I wanted to write down the equations to describe the exact motion of that Frisbee as it's going through the air, I mean, I could turn, like, the entire universe into a supercomputer and have it calculate away for the rest of the history of the universe. And I still couldn't give you, like, the perfect exact answer to that question. So, so I mean, so physics is a, it's a way of describing things for sure mathematically, uh, but, but nature can, can be described in other ways. Uh, it can be described in other ways too. Like, like if you're, if you're on a swing, for example, you don't need to know about, uh, damped driven harmonic oscillators to know that you kick when you're at the bottom, cause that's just, you know, that's just when it works. <laughs> and, and and, and so and so after we have these kind of intuitions that are that are there in our in our day to day life, then physics comes in and says, OK, well, why? Why at the bottom? Or if I give a little kick, do I go a little bit higher or do I go a lot higher? And and so then we start getting careful and we use things like rulers and stopwatches and and we start to notice patterns and we can say things like. Uh, let's see. So we can say things like if I, if I push you as hard as I can on the swing and you swing, you come up to the top of my sister's head, then if we go to some different swing where the rope is, let's say twice as long and I push you there, uh, still as hard as I can, you again, you would go just up to the top of my sister's head, but she'd have to be standing further back and it would take you longer to get there. Uh, you know, we could even say it's like the square root of two times longer to get there. So, so physics is, it's, it's about relations. And we use math to, to understand relations, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's all a model. It's, um, Question for you really quick, Tom. So, so far, yeah. it's, it sounds like physics for the most part. And if I think back to the different um, like laws that you learn about in physics um, when you're growing up and stuff, there's like gravity, motion, things like that. In the example that you just gave with a swing or let's say like an airplane taking off or whatever it is, like these are all things that we apply physics to. Um, is it safe to say that physics looks at how things move through the universe or are there other things that physics measure as well, not just like movement? Because like both, both gravity and movement have to do with the same thing, which is that object is falling, that object is moving. That You know, it's always like movement oriented um, are there other things that, that physics measures as well, or is it pretty much all movement based? I think, uh, yeah, I think movement is, is a pretty, uh, crucial feature in, in physics. So physics, you know, it can, it can also be used to describe, uh, static situations. Like if I, if I want to, uh, make some crazy pyramid where I'm balancing all sorts of things on top of each other. You know, at the end of the day, hopefully that's not really moving, <laughs> you know, but uh, but we had to use our, our physical understanding of, of the fact that if I do things wrong, it will move. It, you know, this whole thing will topple down. 
so so I think yeah I think you're you're hitting on a point there that that uh, physics you know it, it's not necessarily going to always be describing the motion of some particular object you know even the concept of what we mean by some particular object even becomes like a little fuzzy sometimes when you're talking about physics uh, but but this this uh, I guess this this general idea of of looking at how um, Things change through time, or how things don't change through time, is is definitely uh, a major part of it. Okay, so it strikes me that, like the example that you give about a pyramid, or, or again thinking about like a plane taking off or something, that there would be um, <clears throat> kind of a a major tie between engineering and physics in terms of the engineers needing to. Uh, build the like the engineering is the way that physics applies to the actual world uh, so to speak that like the engineers build these things and the the physicist let us know if this thing that we are going to build is actually going to work and would then give the engineers um instructions on how to build that thing at all or how to build it better would that be safe to say about like a way in which we apply physics to the world today I think that's definitely one of the ways that we apply physics to the world today. You know, this, uh, I, I think, I feel like this model that you, that you have in your mind is, is something that a lot of people have about physics, which is that it's a very, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of relating this to like mechanical engineering, building structures, you know, talking about these, uh, these, you know, these objects that have uh, properties like shape and volume and hardness and size and these are all concepts that we're like very intimately familiar with you know from a from kind of a human perspective uh, but physics it'll even go beyond that and it'll start talking about uh, more more conceptual <laughs> types of objects that we really don't have uh, necessarily great ways of of visualizing in terms of okay I can build a pyramid out of electrons like what does that what does that even mean to build a pyramid out of just electrons <laughs> right right <laughs> All right, so now that we've laid a little bit of the groundwork for just physics as a whole, let's get into the uh, much more confusing and interesting and groundbreaking stuff that you work on. So you are a particle physicist working at CERN, which is world famous. I'm sure pretty much everyone listening to this um, knows what CERN is. Um, but why don't you, I guess, just really quickly explain what CERN is for those people listening that don't know or to just give a better explanation to people that, that do know a little bit about it and then explain kind of what a particle physicist working at CERN does. Cool, yeah. So uh, so at CERN, what we're, you know, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is uh, we're trying to either, uh, either find new particles or we're trying to take the particles that are already out there and, uh, and really understand their, their properties better. So there's... I guess there, there's kind of three parts to this to this whole process, or or maybe four if you you know if you count the like the party after you discover the Higgs, <laughs> <laughs> or, or I guess five if you, you know if you count the theorists in the first place coming up with the models. But okay, there's like well I'll just talk about the three parts. So the first part in this whole process is uh, is accelerating particles, and so at CERN we have this enormous uh, particle accelerator and collider called the Large Hadron Collider. And uh, to give you a, a sense of the size of it, it's a, it's a circular ring 
that's yeah, it's buried about 100 meters underground, and it's uh, it's 26 kilometers in circumference. And so you, we will accelerate uh, ultimately protons for the most part. Uh, there, there's a couple other particles that we do sometimes, but we accelerate protons in this in this underground ring uh, to super high energies, and then we get them to collide with each other. In a you know, it, and you can get these things to collide, but the trick is getting them to collide in a really controlled way, <laughs> and getting it to happen in just you know just the exact spot where you want it to happen, you know, which is where you've built your detectors. So so these these collisions they'll they'll happen at a couple different points uh, all around this this large accelerator, um, and and after we have the collision. Then we have uh, the second part of this whole process, which is uh, you know actually collecting the data. So uh, so so I, I won't talk so much right now about what you know what happens inside the particle collision. Maybe we'll, we'll get back to that. Um, but but the answer ends up being that in, inside a particle collision, at the end of the day, we have a ton of new particles that are being created, and they come flying off at crazy angles. And so the goal of our detector is is to you know see as many of these particles that come flying out of the collision as as possible and so the way the way we do this is uh we build our detector uh it's made up of really a bunch of smaller sub detectors that are essentially uh giant concentric cylinders that are that are placed around the beam line with uh, the point of collision happening right right in the center there and so, so the particles that are, you know, that, that are produced in this collision, they're going to pass outward and they go through one layer of the detector, then the next layer, then the next layer. And each of these different layers of our detector are designed to, uh, to interact specifically with one type of particle or another type of particle. And so uh, this, this allows us, uh, when, we're, when we're finally looking at the data, to, to kind of distinguish between one type of particle and another. So, so okay. So after we have our, our collision and we have all of these uh, these particles that are streaming out going into our detector, I should mention uh, that these these collisions uh, these collisions are happening. Uh, it's it's not just that we're colliding one proton with one proton, uh, and it's not actually like we have yeah you know, we talk about a beam of particles that are that are going around in our accelerator. It's actually not really a beam in, uh, in the sense that it's like some continuous line of, of protons. What it is, is it's, it's a bunch of, uh, of groups of protons. And when I, when I talk about a group of protons, it's not just like a handful. It's actually uh, something like, uh, like 10 to the 11 protons per, per group. Oh, wow. So that's, so that's uh, what, that's 100,000 times a million uh, <laughs> protons per group. That are that are passing, you know, these these bunches are passing through each other every 25 nanoseconds, uh, and so this means that when we're running, uh, we we end up having uh, just really this this whole mess that's uh, that's being that's being produced that our detector is trying to capture, uh, and this whole mess gets reproduced <laughs> every every like tiny tiny fraction of a second. So you're so, uh, talking about like trillions of these protons hitting other protons uh it, it actually ends up being uh 
<laughs> that we, we end up getting around maybe 30 or so proton-proton uh, collisions in, in a single, we call it a bunch crossing. No way, because they're, they're so, so small that even though there are 10 to the 11 of them hurtling towards each other, only 30 of them end up actually hitting? Yeah, that's right. And of course, you know, this is all complicated by the fact that it's not actually 30. You know, sometimes it's 25, sometimes it's 45. And so you can't just, uh, you can't just say, okay, here's, here's the experiment I want to do. Proton, proton, come in. This stuff comes out, you know, even from, from the very beginning, you're dealing with the fact that you've got this collision and this other collision that are both happening at about the same time and are making all sorts of, uh, all sorts of backgrounds that, uh, that can be difficult to, to distinguish your, your signals from. Now, what are we trying to observe? Like, what are we thinking might happen? Because, so, uh, to think about this from, like, a layman's perspective from my perspective that is to say it's like if i if i have a brick and i have another brick and i smash them against each other the thing that i would expect to happen is that like is to see pieces of brick fall off so it's like okay i started with two bricks now there's just tiny pieces of brick on the ground because i started with two bricks so if you smash two protons together shouldn't it just be that like well now i have fractions of protons or like tiny proton pieces from the accident yeah uh it does it does kind of seem like that should be the case (laughs) and this is this is uh kind of gets back to what i was saying before about we have these these models and they have this extraordinary predictive power but when we start trying to take them literally, they tell us some pretty crazy things. And, and one, of, one example of a crazy thing it tells us is if you collide protons together, you don't necessarily just get protons out. So, in fact, most of the time you do get protons out. You know, you have two protons come in, they kind of have a glancing blow, and they come off at some sort of uh, a little bit, their angle slightly changed, and we can say, okay, that's conservation of momentum, and, you know, that was a big deal for, like, Isaac Newton. But, uh, but nowadays, you know, that's not a huge discovery. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, if you, if you think of, uh, so, so, so if you think of, like, like, two trains that are on the same track and they're just, like, barreling towards each other, you know, and, and they collide, you know that there's potentially a lot of energy that gets released in a, uh, in a collision of some sort. Right. And... And so, so when we have all this, all this energy uh, that, that's getting released, well, well, Einstein, <laughs> he can come over and say, you know, this thing about energy, you know, E equals mc squared, uh, I've, got, I've got a formula for you. And so what E equals mc squared is saying, so the C in mc squared is just the speed of light, and it's really just kind of a, a constant of proportionality to make sure we get the units right. So what, so what this equation is really saying is E, which is energy, equals M, which is mass, you know, times C squared. So if we have this, uh, so if we have this, this collision that gives off a ton of energy, another way of, of, of interpreting all of this energy is as mass. And so if you think that's like a, a, weird, <laughs> a weird kind of thing, then uh, yeah, you're totally right. It is it is pretty weird to think that you can you can collide these two protons, and for for a minute there, or for not a minute, a very small fraction of a second there, 
they 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 turn into energy and then once you have all this energy okay that turns back into mass but since it since it's coming since it's turning into mass just from being energy it doesn't know what it used to be so the energy doesn't know that it it used to be a pair of protons that's oh, interesting because it, 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 it got hit hard enough and there was so much energy it's like not even a proton anymore it's not even a thing all it is right. is potential that's right it's it's just it's just this energy and so then yeah and so then the energy turns into mass and it can turn into you know th- there are still rules for the kinds of things it can and cannot turn into but it can turn into a whole lot of things more than just uh, just protons and that's that's like the basic idea of, of what we're trying to study here so a couple of questions what sorts of things has it turned into as opposed to just protons and what made people think to begin with that this might happen or like what why did we start smashing protons together to begin with uh so it can it can turn into uh really it can the the energy can turn into any um any pair of particles or any any particles that uh that that have that it has enough energy to turn into (laughs) uh you know there are there are certain rules like uh, you know if you have two protons that are that are coming in then uh, you know both of those will have a charge of of plus one then at the end of the day after everything has has collided and, and come out charge is conserved so there still must be a net you know plus plus one plus one charge floating around somewhere but it's not necessarily going to be sitting in in a pair of protons uh, so. So really, it can turn into into any of the of the fundamental particles. You know, it can turn into electrons. It can turn into uh, yeah. We have we have all sorts of other particles out there. Um, but there are you know there there are some some kind of technical uh, rules that uh, that quantum field theory gives us, which allow us to to say definitively, okay, this you know this collision is able to produce these kinds of particles. In this kind of uh, at this kind of rates at this kind of um, uh, probability, but it's uh, it's really kind of yeah just just sort of up in the air and uh, you know there's there's a famous saying in, in quantum mechanics that anything that can happen does happen. So if if something isn't explicitly forbidden and not allowed by the by the laws of physics, then uh, you you should probably just assume that it is in fact happening. And uh, and more often than not, we find uh, we find that to actually be the case. Now, aren't are, are the laws of physics shifting to a certain extent as well? Especially when you when you talk about like quantum theory and things. So then, how do we know that even the laws that were like okay, it can do basically whatever it wants as long as it follows the laws of physics? It's like, well, how do we even know how concrete of a law our law is? Yeah. Uh, that's you know that that's definitely a relevant question for uh, for anyone who's who's trying to like you know ask these questions in in a serious way is uh, you know how well do we know what we're talking about and so one of the you know one of the really core parts of, of physics is is quantifying and being able to say okay not only do I do I think that you know we're gonna make a pair of electrons out of this uh, out of this collision. I can tell you that we're going to make a pair of electrons. You know, there's like a 50% likelihood that we're going to make this this pair of electrons. 
and not just a 50% likelihood, it's 50 plus or minus 5% likelihood. And so, so this, this idea of, of, of the laws of, of physics being in flux, I think it's, uh, I think they're, they're a little more stable than, uh, than people always give it credit for. So we, you know, we talk about this, uh, we talk about this big revolution when Einstein came around and, and he said, ah, you know, Newton and Newton and his, uh, and his physics, this is, this is wrong. And I've got this much better way of looking at, at the universe. And, uh, and so we talk about physics kind of going through these, uh, through these stages of, uh, of understanding where, ah, okay, we had Newton and then later we just threw it all away and, and started talking about general relativity and quantum mechanics and who knows what the next thing is going to be. And in a sense, that's true. But in another sense, uh, everything is, is just constantly building on itself. So in, uh, in, in Newton's world, for example, uh, he, talked about, uh, he talked about the motions of, of different objects. And he, would, you know, he had the famous apple falling on the head and talking about gravity. And the, the, the underlying uh, assumption in all of Newtonian mechanics that, that Einstein overthrew was this idea that we have a, a static universe, that, that the universe is really just kind of a background that physics takes place in. And then Einstein said, you know, actually, what you're doing inside the universe, you know, what you're, the, uh, yeah, what you're doing inside the universe, that actually affects the universe itself. So trying to, to separate the, uh, you know, the playing field from the game is actually not a distinction that you can make. And so when you're, you know, wh when you're going from, from kind of one type of theory to another type of theory, it's not as though any of Newton's, uh, anything Newton said was ever wrong. You know, Einstein's, Einstein's uh, predictions, his, his general relativity and special relativity, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't negate anything that, that Newton says. What, what it does is it, is it says you're, you're just kind of limited. You're only looking at, you know, Newton was only looking at some small portion of, of reality. He wasn't looking at what happens when particles start going close to the speed of light or what happens when you get uh, super massive stars that turn into black holes. You know, that kind of stuff, those kind of questions were just out of, out of the, the realm of conceivability for Newton. And so this, this idea that, that the law of phys laws of physics are, are in flux and are just getting replaced is, uh, in the one sense, it's, it's true. We do move from one kind of theory to another kind of theory, but we never really invalidate any of the old results. All we, all we ever do is, uh, is recontextualize them and see them as as part of a much bigger picture. Right, right. And it still follows it's it sounds like some sort of a, a lot of the the laws will be held, like like you said like just because um of Einstein's discovery that doesn't all of a sudden mean that gravity isn't a thing anymore or anything. Like gravity is still very much a thing. It's just we have a new framework with which to think about this. So it's not like to, I guess to that point like you mentioned smashing the two protons together and you can get different things to come out. Like you're not 
ever going to smash two protons together and like all of a sudden a gold brick is going to drop on the floor inside of the LHC. Like it's not going to like two protons isn't going to turn into gold one day. Yeah, I mean, uh, really, what what the the actual answer to that question is, uh, you know, the probability is not zero. The probability <laughs> that's great. The probability is like crazy small. Uh, you know, it's like I don't know, zero point like a billion zeros, and then like a one. <laughs> but uh, but it's it's actually not technically zero. Is the probability of anything zero? No, I, I don't mean necessarily just within the LHC, but like the probability of me flying, like just taking off from a standstill on the ground and, and just like flying is that zero or is that also just like zero point zero 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 one yeah it's also it's also not zero uh but i guess i guess the the caveat that i should i should give with with all this is that you know the the kind of numbers that we're that we're starting to talk about these like small small fractions of percents these are the kind of numbers where uh you know, I, at the beginning, I was talking about, you know, if, if you give me the entire universe, you know, and convert it into a supercomputer, there's still calculations that I can't even come close to finishing. This is this is that kind of thing. You know, you can you can sit around colliding protons for, uh, you know, many times longer than the uh, than the lifetime of the universe. And OK, the probability that a lead brick is or that a gold brick is going to fall out. It's not zero. But uh, it's still not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it's so unbelievably insignificant. It might as well be zero. Um, yeah. So, but there are important conceptual differences between zero and very, very close to zero. Interesting. Talk about that a little bit. And and so then also we've again just given examples of things that aren't even necessarily zero. So what is an example of something that truly is zero? And then why is that different than the chance of say me flying or a gold brick showing up? So the uh, the so in in quantum mechanics everything uh, you know one of one of the like great wonders of, of, of quantum mechanics is uh, and one of like the terrible <laughs> this terrible feature of quantum mechanics is that in in uh, like the price you pay for being able to make these super exact predictions is that you you ultimately only end up with uh, with probabilities and so and so we're able to get into these realms of of getting these uh, these super small numbers when whenever we're talking about uh, processes that do technically obey the laws of physics like I can I can imagine some some process uh, where two protons come in and it's like a very complicated, very very rare kind of process. But I can I can draw it out for you how how you could end up making uh, a gold brick out of this. And so then if I if I you know work through the numbers, we'll end up seeing okay yeah the probability for that gold brick is like super tiny. Uh, and so so that's an example of something that has you know these minuscule minuscule uh, probabilities. It isn't literally impossible. Uh, things that that are zero would be things that uh, it, it's almost kind of sounds like a tautology, but things that do violate the laws of physics. So I was talking before about uh, you know you have you have these two protons coming in. Each of them have a have a positive one charge, so your net charge is is plus two. At the end of the day, 
we know that there has to be uh, a net charge of, of plus two coming out. And if, if we somehow observed that two protons collide and there isn't a, a charge of two coming out, that would be, uh, that would be huge. That would, be, that would you know, probably revolutionize physics. That would be saying, okay, this, uh, this like, really sacred law, this conservation of charge that, uh, that, that we hold you know, as, as one, of, like, the, one of the cores, one of the core tenets in, uh, in, in doing particle physics, uh, if, if we see that that's not, if we see that that's being violated, then, uh, you know, then, that, then that would really just kind of break open all sorts of new, potentially new, new lines of thought. It would really, I think what it would do is it would, it, it would just kind of trash our field for, for quite a while and people would just have no idea what to, <laughs> what to make of it. Right, right. Now, um, to, to, to that point of the having two uh, like free protons or whatever it is, like, like a charge of two left over, uh, not to like beat a dead horse, but then how could we get a gold brick? Because if there's only a charge of two, isn't there, doesn't gold have like <clears throat> way more protons and electrons and all that going on than just two protons? Yeah. Uh, so, so I guess I was, I was kind of hiding some, some feature there, which would be that you wouldn't just exclusively necessarily get the gold brick. You'd probably get the gold brick and, uh, to make things like simplest, you'd probably get a gold brick and an anti-gold brick. And that would be, that would be a nice way to, oh, to, right. keep, to keep the symmetry, uh, you know, like like I was talking before about this this conservation of charge. You start with the plus two charge. You need to end with a plus two charge. Uh, really, you know, people people think that antimatter is like this uh, is this crazy thing out there, and maybe it is kind of a crazy thing out there. But it's it's kind of a normal everyday thing for <laughs> for us at CERN to talk about. You know, if you start with uh, if you start with no no matter, you just have uh, pure energy. Then another one of these conservation rules is that, you know, as much matter as I make, I'm going to want to make as much antimatter to kind of balance this out. So this this also kind of comes back to the idea that that uh, the laws of physics, you know, they have this, they certainly have this uh, very mathematical character to them, but at you know at the end of the day, what they're really concerned with are uh, are relations between different things and how. Yeah, it's it's relations between different things. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So we talked about protons in the LHC. Are you guys able to and have you smashed other things together as well? Like, have you smashed entire atoms together? Like, can you smash like a nitrogen atom into a nitrogen atom? Or is that potentially very, very dangerous? So, yeah, so we, we do collide things other than other than just protons. Uh, you know, the reason we collide protons is because they're they're these very simple particles you know, we can get them easily. You know, a proton is really the, the nucleus of a hydrogen atom. Is, uh, you know, so at the, at the Large Hadron Collider, we actually just have, it's kind of a, a small little bottle of hydrogen. And uh, that's the, uh, the, the beginning of, uh, of this whole huge accelerator complex uh, where we, you know, we strip the electron off, then we're just left with a proton, and then we accelerate it. But we do we do collide other things than than protons, uh, in particular uh, lead lead atoms. Uh, so the the nucleus of a of a lead atom 
is is something that people are 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 interested in looking at. And the the reason for this is is kind of the exact opposite as the reason for why we would like to use protons. So protons are nice because they're kind of like the simplest that we can do. Lead is interesting because it's kind of like the most complicated that we can do. So it it turns out that that lead is uh, is very dense, <laughs> as uh, you're probably probably aware. Uh, but it turns out that that lead is actually uh, if you if you look at the the periodic table of of the elements, lead lead is uh, is a very interesting element uh, from from the the structure of the nucleus. It's it's actually so uh, if you if you think about uh, nuclear reactors, and you know the main way that we get energy out of a out of a nuclear reactor is uh, something called fission. So we take uranium or plutonium, which are these uh, super heavy atoms, and then they start to fall apart because they're unstable. And so as they fall apart, they give off energy, and we collect that energy, and we power our washing machine. Uh, the other way that people like to think about nuclear energy. Is, uh, is going the other direction. This is fusion. So if you take two particles, let's say we take two hydrogen atoms and we, when we stick them together, we can get energy out of that too. And we get a, we get a, you know, we get a helium atom and, and all this extra energy. So somewhere in between these, these two extremes, things have to flip, right? If, 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 uh, if I can put two hydrogen atoms together and get energy out, or if I can take this uh, really heavy uranium atom and split it apart and get energy out. Well, lead, it turns out, lead is, is that, that kind of turning point where you can keep sticking more and more particles together and you'll keep getting more and more energy out of it until you hit lead. So after lead, uh, the more particles you put in, the, uh, the, the, more, the less energy you, you get out of it. Hmm. So, so lead is, so, so lead is, is a, a very dense, uh, complicated atom and by smashing smashing lead into lead or lead into protons, we can see uh, a really dense uh, picture of of the entirety of of the mess that uh, that's kind of just modeled in a in a single proton proton collision. What sorts of things come out when you guys are smashing the lead together? Like, are 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 the outcomes much more variable than when you're just smashing protons together? So the uh, the the final particles that are coming out are are the same, um, and they're the same because uh, really it's the same particles that are going in. So you know we 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 think of lead and uh, and hydrogen as being two two pretty different types of atoms, but from a particle physicist perspective, we'd say okay, well they're really ultimately just made up of uh, protons, neutrons, and electrons. And protons and neutrons are made up of the same things. So, so the, the kinds of, of possibilities for what you're going to get out of a, a lead collision and a proton collision are kind of the same. Uh, the difference is in the, is in the details of, of what's actually going on at that moment of collision. So we talked before about, you know, you, you, get, your, uh, you get your collision and it gives off all this energy and then E equals mc squared, that energy turns into mass, well, you can, uh, you, you can, you can look at that in a, in a really clean way uh, by, by trying to, to look at 
just this one particular particle colliding with just this one other particular particle. Uh, but it, it's, it can also be interesting to say, well, what if, I, what if I just, you know, what if I just throw this against a wall? What's, uh, you know, wh what am I going to see there? And, uh, and the answer ends up being that you can see uh, kind of the, the internal structure of, of these particles uh, reveal itself in ways that it doesn't reveal itself when you just have the clean kind of one-on-one -on -one type of type of collision. Okay, gotcha. So something I have to ask that I, before we go any further with this is why? Why the hell are we doing this? <sighs> yeah. So uh, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to answer that question. I think it was uh, <laughs> I I think it was Feynman had a had a a, a great quote which was, uh, uh, let me see if I can get it right. He said, you know, the, the, the reason, you know, maybe, at, maybe the reason that, uh, that people have sex is, is to make children, but that's not really the reason, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I think there's something, something sort of like that with physicists. You know, yes, there, there are real-world applications, uh, and we can talk about some of these, and there, there are very, like, very tangible real-world applications to a lot of stuff that goes on at CERN. But I think if you, if you really get an honest answer from, from a physicist, or I think this is true for, for scientists in all sorts of different fields, the reason that we're ultimately doing it is because we want to find out, because we're curious, because we don't know what happens, and, uh, and, and we, we want to know. But I guess it, I, at this point, don't we kind of know, like you're starting to form probabilities on, the, on uh, you know, what sorts of things will happen, let's say, when we smash two protons together. So why are we still smashing two protons together? Um, is it to just like every, I guess, it, you know, we're, we're recreating the same experiment over and 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 we're not really changing it, right? Like we're just still doing the same thing um, I guess on your guys' end, from an interest level, I feel like every time you do it, your interest level would go down a little bit because it's like, okay, this is the same thing we did yesterday. Now it's the same thing we did two days ago. Um, or am I thinking about that wrong? Like, is it like, no, there's still a world of possibilities every single time you do it. Um, and, and, or are you guys sort of upping the difficulty, so to speak, like upping the variables and, and changing it around every single time? Yeah, we are. Uh, we are still interested, <laughs> um, and and I think there's good reasons for us to still be interested. Um, at, at at its core, we you know we we like I, I've been saying we have we have these theories that we're like very confident in, and we even give it you know we give it a name called the standard model because it's like the standard model that everyone uses. And uh, and it's really great, and it really makes a ton of uh, a ton of good predictions. But we also know that we kind of uh, we kind of cheated a little bit in 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 making the standard model. Mm, right. uh, there there are there are some assumptions that we that we've had to make to 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 actually go through the math to at the end of the day like have have some some concrete prediction. And specifically, the the assumption that we're making is is we say, you know, this kind these kinds of processes are going to be 
happening at a low enough energy that I don't care about some of this other stuff. And uh, the the obvious way to uh, kind of negate this this assumption is to is to just keep going to higher and higher energy. Mm. And so, so the fact that that we do have these kinds of problems, maybe not maybe problems not the right word, but that we that we have made we have made assumptions uh, in in going into into the standard model, and we know that. It, yes, it has this uh, this like beautiful mathematical structure to it, but it's still uh, it's still in a sense unfinished. There's there's still some pieces to it that that we don't really understand. Um, we don't understand how things got got the way they are. For example, uh, we can we can talk about the different types of fundamental particles, and some of them are uh, you know we have like a uh, a, a top quark is a type of quark, and it it weighs the same, uh, just about the same as an entire gold atom. Whereas another type of particle is a uh, is a neutrino, and neutrinos they weigh billions and billions of times less than than the mass of a proton. So so once we have these this these theories that work that make these uh, these great predictions. We can start asking questions like, well, why is it that a neutrino weighs so much less than a top quark? And that's a really interesting question. And that's, uh, that's maybe starting to get away from just this how and starting to get back to the, to the why. Why are, why are the, the parameters that we see, why are they the parameters that we see? And why are they not just some other values? So, so from, that, from that kind of perspective, it is still interesting um, from from the the perspective of like okay you're just doing proton proton collisions day in day out uh, how does how does that maintain its its interest well it's it's uh, it maintains its interest because there's still yeah there's still just so much that we that we haven't looked at something that I think kind of makes makes CERN a, a unique and a really interesting place uh, to work as opposed to other kinds of scientific experiments is that we are really working on the same data set. There's like, I think there's about 3,000 physicists with, uh, with my particular experiment. There's about 10,000 at CERN in general. And, uh, and we're all analyzing you know, the, the, same, the same stuff, just looking at it in different ways. Wow, so like that's it, incredible. Know, in, yeah, like, like in astronomy, if I, if I say, okay, I've, I've got some like, interesting observation I want to make, then I'll go uh, over to the telescope and I'll like, try and schedule some time. And they'll say, okay, you've got five hours and we're going to point the telescope exactly where you want. And when it's looking at, you know, at, at my star, it's not looking anywhere else in the sky. And that's my data set. But at CERN, everyone is, is just saying, okay, proton, proton collisions all day, every day. And then you might be saying, like, you know, I'm I'm interested in uh, in looking at at for for a dark matter particle, for example. I'm trying to discover dark matter over there, and maybe I am too. Maybe the two of us are both looking for dark matter, but the way that uh, the way that you're searching for it, maybe it'll interact in some some way in the detector, and I think it'll interact in a different way in the detector. Wow, so we're taking the same data set, and yeah. 
and parsing it in different ways. So you're saying, for, first of all, I, that's astounding to me. I never knew that. So there are 10,000 physicists at CERN? Yeah, yeah. Between the, the different experiments, is about incredible. 10, and so you're also saying that uh, these 10,000 people, they are all looking at the same data set from the Large Hadron Collider. They're all doing that. And then uh, most likely, basically of the 10,000, no two people are looking at the exact same thing in the exact same way. Yeah, roughly. Uh, so, you know, the, the data that you get is, is going to be coming from the detector itself. And so there's a couple different detectors around the, uh, the Large Hadron Collider. So this 10,000 number is if you add up all the different detectors. So in, in, for, with my detector, the CMS uh, experiment, I think there's about 3,000. But yeah, it's, it's the same. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the idea that, that you're getting at, that, uh, yeah, that we are all looking at kind of the same data, but we're all looking at it in our own way, trying to, to pull our own, you know, the information that we think is, is interesting out of there. Wow, so interesting. So the, it, it, the, if we're looking at like each thing by like subsets and getting smaller and smaller, at the biggest level, everyone's using the Large Hadron Collider. Then going one level down to you're saying like you have 3,000 people using your detector, it would be looking at the data from different detectors within the Large Hadron Collider is how like the next split up would be. And then from there, it gets like into smaller and smaller groups. Yeah. And actually, I think we, you know, we have like a, a pretty a pretty good uh, structure for, for how we go about doing, doing this analysis, even breaking it down further from there. So, uh, you know, it, our, our detector has all these different components to it uh, that, are, that, you know, that are designed to be good at, at detecting this type of particle or, or that type of particle. And so we have groups that are, that are part of our experiment that are just dedicated to, okay, I'm going, you know, this group is going to be responsible for reconstructing electrons. And we're going to study electrons and we're going to learn as much as we can about them. And then we're going to give recommendations to the whole rest of the collaboration for how they should look at electrons. And then another person might look at a different type of particle or another group. And so we have these groups that are dedicated to really identifying this type of particle or that type of particle. And then at the same time, we have other groups that say, okay, uh, we're going to be an analysis that is interested in looking at dark matter as it's produced with, uh, with a photon. And our analysis is going to be looking for dark matter plus a photon and specifically exclusively that. And so you, you have... Uh, you have kind of this coordination between between the different groups, between the different analyses, where uh, because we have these three thousand people that are all, you know, really looking at the same uh, looking at the same data set, we're all able to communicate with each other and and learn from each other and uh, and give recommendations for for what we've seen and and try and make everything as uh, as comprehensible as uh, and internally consistent as as we can that's so cool what is it like when you guys get off work like if you see other guys out at a bar uh, or other other people like is it everyone's still kind of like talking oh my gosh like i saw the craziest thing today or like oh this thing happened today yeah uh we you know CERN is a very it's a very unique place it's really 
it's kind of it's kind of <laughs> it's it's maybe like uh you know our own little mental institution <laughs> uh we, you know physicists have have a uh the the you know i think there there is there is enough of a uh of of a barrier to getting into physics uh of self selection for you know people that that don't that don't want to get into the math cuz yeah you know the math can be hard sometimes like there's there's no getting around it uh so that I think the the group that you end up with, the people that end up being physicists, are really just people that just they just love physics, and and they're just so pumped about physics, and uh, and so yeah, people, I you know I think an issue that a lot of people come across being out here at CERN, uh, especially Americans being uh, being on the other side of the ocean, being being cut off from. Uh, a lot of aspects of American culture is uh, is kind of striking some sort of a work life balance, and uh, people do get really into just like do my physics twenty four seven and like and drill away. And yeah, when you're when you're off, you're still talking about physics, and uh, and physics can definitely penetrate you know all aspects of your life out here. Uh, but I will say it doesn't have to. There, there are us out here who, uh, you know, who I'll even say like have have a little bit of a life. <laughs> That's great. Are there are there like dorms on campus at CERN, or uh, do do you guys live elsewhere? Like, I, I guess talk a little bit more about the lifestyle out there. There, yeah, there's they have. Uh, it's called the CERN Hostel. Is uh, maybe their dorms, and uh, I think the rule is that you can only stay there for three months. Um, so they do encourage people if they're going to be moving out there for, uh, for longer than, you know, just a short little period of time to try and find their own place and, and live out in the community. Uh, so, so I guess we haven't actually talked about where any of this is, is physically located. Yeah. Uh, so this is, this is out, um, just, just on the border of, of France and Switzerland, uh, just outside of Geneva. And actually, the the Large Hadron Collider itself, the the accelerator itself, crosses the border. So it really is like between France and and Switzerland there. Uh, and so there's there's a, a couple towns that I think have have really kind of just become become overrun with with physicists. There's a couple towns that uh, that basically everyone everyone lives in uh, Saint Genis and uh, Ferney Voltaire uh, and I'd say comparatively few actually live down in uh, in Geneva, the city itself. Um, but that's that's where I've been for the for the past couple years, and I think that's one of those decisions that was really important to me to uh, to not just have physics be exclusively the only thing that's going on in my life. Yeah, for sure. It's got to be so. You're a U.S. citizen. It's got to be such a. I mean, already going to to Europe is you know very different wherever it is in Europe is different culturally than being in the US. It's got to be so different being in these small towns in either Switzerland or France where like you said like a large percent of the population is like amazing particle physicists and quantum physicists and stuff. 
And it like going from that to then, let's say like coming home here for the holidays or something, is it, or, or for that matter, going anywhere else, like compared to your small town where it's like dominated by incredibly brilliant people. Is it, is it kind of strange, like leaving the area that you're at? It, yeah, it is. I mean, you know, like, uh, okay, I've been out here for, for like four years or whatever, but like definitely the majority of my life I've been around uh, normal people. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, it's not totally foreign to me to interact with, uh, with humans from time to time. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it, it really is, uh, it really is just its own unique, very, uh, very, very, special world out here where uh it's you know it's lunchtime and and you just go out and and you you like accidentally come across uh like a a nobel prize winner as he's just like eating his lunch and uh you overhear conversations and everyone's just talking about physics and uh you know like i said the the kind of people who who end up doing physics are people who are just really pumped about physics (laughs) so uh so it's like it's uh you know almost i'll I'll say it's an upside you know it's it's uh it is it is kind of nice are there any jobs in the private industry for a particle physicist like i think when people think of the really high sciences like what what you are doing um it's pretty much always thought of in a educational sort of way or or just like for the like research for the sake of knowledge per se, you know, um, are there any like private industry jobs that like pay really well for particle physicists to try to like solve a problem that, you know, would lead to a product or lead to a company having more money? Uh, well, yes, kind of yes and no there. So there aren't really private companies out there that are building, you know, another large Hadron Collider because, it's going to be profitable for them to, you know, discover supersymmetry first or something. <laughs> uh, but there are a, a lot of the the technology that that we develop here. Uh, you know, even even just the accelerator technology. You know, in in hospitals, uh, radiation therapy is is a big thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a big way to treat cancer. And so uh, most of the particle accelerators that you see in the world actually are are in hospitals. Mm. Uh, so they're operating at lower energy <laughs> than than the large hadron collider but there are uh, so so uh there are there are these kind of uh applications um that are out there but i think most so it's true physics uh is a pretty academic type of job and if you uh if you if you really stay in it and you stay doing physics you're probably going to have to be connected to the to the academic world uh and so that's not you know that's not possible for everyone who who graduates uh, so most people end up going into uh, these kind of high tech industries. We do a lot of, you know, we do a lot of data analysis. So uh, analyzing big data is uh, is something that uh, you know it's a hot topic these days. Um, going to going to Wall Street, doing uh, investment type stuff is another thing that a lot of physicists make a, a ton of money. No way, uh, that's crazy. Yeah, just because they're <laughs> yeah, so I mean, they're I so think... good with math and numbers and analysis and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what like what they're doing is they're we're we're taking this huge pile of data and we're trying to find some like tiny little signal in it and just like 
analyze it and <laughs> just analyze you know the, the crap out of it uh so that's so, that's, so funny you know, that's that makes so thing. much sense yeah 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 uh yeah i mean it's you know like i can this is this is one of the tough things about about physics yeah well so i mean i think it's probably not so wrong to say that it was uh physicists mathematicians people doing this kind of this kind of analysis that uh that probably caused the you know the 2008 stock market crash like it's uh it's and and I can see I can see the appeal of these you know these are really interesting problems you know just from a from like a technical standpoint trying to take these these huge data sets and understand them and interpret them and see if you can find weird little quirks that you can exploit like that's a that's a really interesting kind of problem to work on uh you know the the problem is is just kind of like you know if you're messing with stuff in the real world like stock markets, you know, like great power, great responsibility. Right. I think, uh, that, that should be the motto for data analysis. It's so interesting. So it's like the same sort of skill set that allows you guys to discover these amazing things at CERN allows other people, let's say in, like you said, like financial services or something to discover almost like an exploit in the financial services or like look at a pattern in stocks and like always know what stocks to pick or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, for sure. There's a lot of parallels. Wow. That's and so noticed. Yeah. That's so interesting. Do you think that in the future there, there will be more private industry jobs for physicists when we start like venturing out into space and like, you know, trying to maybe colonize the moon or Mars or something like that. Yeah, well, I hope so. <laughs> uh, I don't know. There's, uh, you know, there's like, unfortunately, maybe there, there are a lot of good arguments for uh, like putting more of an emphasis on robotic space travel, uh, which would keep, keep us physicists back home. Um, but, but I think, I think there is a uh, good reason to, to keep sending people out into space. And I think physicists are good candidates for, uh, for the kind of people to send out there. Uh, you know, maybe, okay, there, I think it was Apollo 13, right? Where you have, you're lining up the moon and the guys trying to do the math, calculating their trajectory. Like, okay, yeah, maybe, you know, that would be a physicist who, who's got to be doing that kind of thing. Uh, but I think that's kind of an unrealistic <laughs> idea of, of what, a physicist might be doing up there. I think uh, what I think what is uh, one of the the nice things about physics is that it's really more so than it's uh, trying to memorize a bunch of facts and learn a bunch of uh, specific things. It's 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 more about trying to understand uh, processes and how things work and and relationships between things. So it it puts you in kind of a you know you're 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 developing the skills of problem solving and so uh in in outer space i think there's a lot of room for unexpected problems to arise and so i think yeah yeah take a take a physicist out there yeah so you just made me think if you could try to like separate out for us what a compute at this point a, a computer is able to do with calculations and things like that versus what a physicist is able to do and is being asked to do right now. So you guys, I would imagine, like the computer is more like collecting all the data and it's your job to 
analyze that data would that be correct and then like do you see going forward as computers get better and better or maybe we reach like the singularity technologically speaking does that start to infringe on your turf in terms of analysis and stuff uh well yeah that's an that's an interesting it's an interesting question uh that definitely no one has the answer to right like what's the direction of of artificial intelligence it's it's not hopeless because uh, there the the way that so the way that artificial intelligence works uh, so a, a simple example from uh, I guess this is maybe a little bit older but people were really excited when we had artificial intelligence that could uh, it could predict Newton's laws and and we're like wow you know this this computer just we gave it some random data and then it came up with uh, with, you know, we think of Isaac Newton as this really brilliant guy, and it came up with his laws, and it took him, I don't know, a half an hour to do it. Uh, and that, you know, on the one hand, yeah, that's really, that's really impressive that we could build a computer that can do that kind of thing. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, what was that data set that you gave the computer? You know, you, you probably gave it a bunch of planets, uh, you know, their masses, their positions, their speeds. And so then it took all this information, and then it figured out, ah, there's these different forces, and here's the laws, and here's the form that they that they take. Uh, but but you know what would happen if you gave that computer you know like the entire library of Florence up to 1500? You know how, would it come up with the laws of physics then? You know so the 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 the, the challenge, the real challenge that uh, artificial intelligence and uh, we use a lot of these. We call them multivariate analysis or boosted decision tree. These are these, uh, you know, more modern techniques. Um, they're, they, what they, what they do is, is they rely on having, uh, some sort of a, an input data set that, you know, and so if, if Google wants to identify, you know, every picture of a dog out there, the way that it's going to do it is it's going to take its, uh, you know, it's going to take its algorithm and it's going to train it. It's going to run it, you know, a billion times over pictures that it already knows are dogs. And so, and so computers are really good at, at taking inputs and, and finding patterns in them. Uh, but, but the, the trying to figure out what are the right inputs to give the computer in the first place, that's the kind of question that, uh, that we're really a, just a very long way from from even becoming close to answering. Right, which is really going to be the meat of any sort of major scientific discovery is even having any sort of idea where to look, what to look at. And like you said, like really finding patterns in these things and stuff uh, like you guys are doing. So, um, yeah. Well, that's so the thing. It can, it, can, it can find patterns. Uh, like it, it can find patterns and even patterns that, that people wouldn't, wouldn't come across. But... Uh, but interpreting those patterns, figuring out which ones are relevant, which ones which ones aren't, and uh, and giving them sort of some sort of context, that's the kind of thing that computers have no sense of context. Mm, right. So even right now, the computers can help you find different patterns, but they have no idea what the hell they're looking at. It'll just point out to you like, hey, did you notice there's this pattern right here? And then you get to look at it, and then you get to say what the pattern means. Exactly. Yeah. And so and so you know, people are trying to to write algorithms or, or, or whatever that, you know, that, that really nicely correlate between what the computer thinks as, okay, this is a good output, and what a person would think as, 
ah, yeah, that's you know the product I want to buy or or whatever it might be. Uh, but it's still it's still ultimately all all driven by by having a good input data set. You know, knowing your customer, right? You can't tailor your uh, you can't tailor your uh, advertisement if you don't know who it is you're you're trying to sell it to. Right, right. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about CERN real quick. I would love to know who funds CERN. So you guys are making these grand discoveries that, as you said, can eventually make their way into the private sector or make their way to something like NASA or, or you know, whatever else. But who is, get, like, you know, part of it's in France, part of it's in Switzerland. You guys have employees from all over the world. Uh, you're an American citizen. Like, who is paying your paycheck? Uh, yeah, everybody, man, it's it's a complicated, it's kind of just a mess. Uh, it's, uh, everyone's, everyone's funded by someone else. Um, it, it's mostly goes through universities. So CERN is, uh, CERN is, is this international organization. Uh, they're actually uh, an observer to the UN. Uh, like, I, I think they don't get to vote. But um, they, they're kind of the, the host uh, place where all of these, uh, all of these other uh, universities from, from around the world can, can join in and, uh, and then become part of this, this collaboration. So uh, universities, so in, in the U.S. and most countries, uh, you'll tend to get your funds from the government, so either from the... Uh, National Science Foundation, the NSF, or the Department of Energy, the DOE, uh, and so they'll give a they'll give a grant to maybe some senior professor, or maybe a couple professors, or maybe a couple universities, and uh, the the students and the postdocs and the junior professors will all kind of be under that, and so they're you know responsible for this grant, uh, but this grant might be targeted towards some specific project. Or maybe it'll say, you know, before computing in general. Uh, so uh, you're kind of pulled in that direction. Uh, whereas CERN and the larger, you know, the, the experiment, the collaboration, they 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 want people to work on on the hardware. You know, there's service work that needs to be done. So they're trying to pull people back in this direction because you know you can't analyze data if you don't take it. Uh, and then there are groups that are trying to. Uh, you know, oversee the the analyses, uh, and there are groups that are trying to oversee just the individual parts of uh, of of uh, reconstructing particles. So it's uh, so you you get pulled in in just a lot of different directions, and uh, it's it's kind of it can be tough to to just follow the money. So all that to say, you guys aren't all just getting paychecks from CERN. Like it's not like CERN gets a money from all these different sources and then gives it out to you guys. Like you guys are actually getting money from different people. So like the guy that just came in and was an engineer and needed to work on a piece of the Large Hadron Collider is not getting a paycheck from the same person that you are getting a paycheck from. Yeah, that's right. Uh, most things will be so for for there's even you know it's another layer. There's contractors can come in from uh, you know like you're saying. Some guy is going to come in and, and work on some uh, some piece of, of our detector for maybe a week or something. Uh, they're, they're, we're just going to hire contractors that are out there local in uh, in France, and uh, and so yeah, everyone everyone's kind of uh, everyone's <laughs> everyone's kind of doing their own thing, but we're all 
you know, we all have the same goals. So it, uh, the motivation to, to stay coordinated is, is high enough that it, it still somehow works. So are you, your personal paycheck, is that coming from some sort of American organization because you're an American citizen? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So mine is coming through, uh, Florida State University. Uh, my, I'm actually working for, I'm the first postdoc for a new professor, uh, Ted Kohlberg. And so, uh, he got kind of a, a startup grant to get going, uh, to, to help, you know, develop, develop his, uh, his research projects. And so I'm under that specific grant. Uh, then I'm also getting paid by, uh, the other half of my paycheck is coming from uh, the hadronic calorimeter. So this is one of the subsystems in uh, in the detector I work for, uh, and and so I'm I'm uh, the deputy operations manager for them. So I'm I'm helping oversee kind of the day to day running and and data collection uh, of our of our experiment. Man, that is really interesting. I totally figured that it was just going to be like. All these organizations just give money to CERN and then CERN, you know, deals it out as they see fit, which would be a much easier way to, to handle it, I'm sure, on CERN's end. But instead, everyone's just being paid by different people. It, that that really seems strange because then it's almost like the Large Hadron Collider is just like sitting there, you know, like it's, it's almost like a public library that like anyone can go in and use like, oh, it's just sitting there waiting to be used. Like, yeah, you can get paid by somebody else. Like you're not going to get paid by us to use the Large Hadron Collider, even though it's kind of like ours, like the, like more or less the Large Hadron Collider belongs to CERN, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's a good point. So CERN, yeah. So CERN runs and operates the, the Large Hadron Collider. And there are people who are, you know, full-time employees of CERN. Uh, but it is, I think, yeah, I think the, the public library analogy is maybe, maybe even not so unintentional. Uh, you know, this, this idea of, of it being a, a large, open, worldwide collaboration, um, of course, it's, it's a little more complicated than just saying, okay, anyone who wants to can just walk in and, <laughs> yeah, you, know, <laughs> you got to get your library card. You got to get your library card. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so actually, even like so, the U.S. is not a member state of CERN. Uh, interestingly, they would you know there are, there are big dues that come along with uh, being an official member state, and uh, so instead of instead of paying all of those dues, uh, the U.S. is investing a lot of that in uh, in some local uh, or national, I guess, uh, particle accelerator or uh, particle experiments. Um, and and so we're still able to find we're still able to find a way. There's still a lot of Americans out here. Uh, so there's you know, it seems like this is maybe a, a recurring theme in uh, in Europe is like there's always a way. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, Tom, let's get back to some of the science behind uh, the Large Hadron Collider and what you guys are doing there. So something I didn't ask before when we were just going over some LHC stuff is. How do we accelerate these particles? Like they don't have a, like little uh, jetpacks sitting on the particles or anything. Like how how are they being sped up? What does the LHC actually do to give these things velocity? Yeah, we got jetpacks. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little microscopic jetpack. <laughs> 
Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, Just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show, be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview, a particular field that you would like to hear about, or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show. Thanks so much for listening, you guys.